Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, our prayer is simple. And that is we want to hear directly from you. Yes, Lord. Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you just touch our hearts, prepare our minds, Lord, to hear from you, Lord. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you nudge us where we need to be nudged, that you push us where we need to be pushed. Lord, that we can hear from you and hear from you clearly. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your presence in this place. For it is good to be here, lifting up the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Lord. So, Father, it is our prayer that you have your way in this place. We pray, Lord, that when we leave this place, that we have a renewed sense of urgency, Lord, to continue to worship you, to grow in you, and to proclaim the kingdom of God with the anticipation of your soon return. We thank you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. How does it feel when you're prepared for something that you knew was eventually coming and it, and it happened and you were prepared for? How did you feel? You felt good, right? When you prepare for something and you know it's coming and you don't even know exactly when, whether it's financially or in your household or for your job, it just feels really good that when it's time for you to act, when it's time for you to, to do whatever needs to be done, that you're prepared for it. That's a good feeling. And sometimes we are not prepared. We think we're prepared. And when we, and that happens, we don't feel too good, right? We're rattled, we're nervous, and and things just seems like it's like a snowball effect. It doesn't feel very well. I want to give you two contrasting stories real briefly uh, before we enter to the word of the Lord. Pastor Spencer, there is this uh, small little establishment on the south side of Chicago. And this office, it happens to prepare taxes. It's been doing it for about 40 years now. I won't say the name of it. And this little office, it prepares lots and lots and lots of documents. It, prepares, it has like three different printers. One is down, but you got two good ones that's always going. It's going and it's going. And when this printer, when it gets ready to get, when it's low and, and it needs some more toner, there's a little icon on there and, and some words. And it's pointing downward at this particular color that you need. And it's saying, prepare toner. Prepare toner. It says, prepare toner. And it points to the particular color that needs the attention. Well, we've been doing this for quite some time. And a lot of times what happens is, is that what says prepare toner, instead of putting a new toner, what you do is you can take it out and you can shake it, right? How many of you guys done that, right? <laughs> you shake that toner real good, you pop it back in, and it could go on. It can go on and on and on, right? And we got two of them that does that. One of the times at this little office on the south side of Chicago, this uh, one of the printers said, prepare, prepare. So the proprietors, they took it out, and they shook it, shook it, you know, and it started to go. Oh, we got at least a good couple of days for it, right? But one day just recently, unexpectedly, shaking it didn't work anymore. And this particular printer, if one color goes out, the entire printer doesn't work at all. It doesn't matter that you may have the, the red may be out. If the red is out and the only thing you're doing is printing in black, it doesn't matter. It doesn't work. Well, this office uh, was preparing to get some more toner. 
But he says, we got a little bit more time. We got the warning signs. He says, hey, prepare, prepare. But on one night, we looked on the screen, and it was time to print out refund checks. And you know how it is when people are expecting their money on a certain day. And this particular evening, the toner was out, and we were caught unprepared. We said before we had, we said, oh, we, we see the signs, but we got a couple more days. We've done this plenty of times. We, you know, we shake it down. We got two good days out of it. And it's at nighttime, so there's no place to get it at night. And you do the order. The best that they can do is the next day. Let me tell you, that was a very embarrassing moment when people were coming for their checks and you couldn't print them out. The office was caught unprepared. But just the other day, in contrast to that, and it was so funny, I was going to get ink for my personal printer, and there was the fire truck. I said, oh, there's something going on inside the store. And you go inside, you see two or three firemen, three, I'm sorry, about three or four firemen, they're shopping like everyone else. They're just going through, they had their uniforms on, you can hear the radio, you can hear the dispatch going. But one of the things I just noticed two days ago is that they were prepared. They had their radio, they had their helmets, they had everything. There was no emergency there, and there hadn't been one before. They were just going about their daily business, but they were, they were prepared. Yeah. They didn't know that if a fire was going to happen, they, suddenly, on, uh, unexpectedly, but if it was, they were prepared. And today's scripture is going to talk about Jesus' warning about being prepared. Prepared, unprepared, a warning from our Lord. So I invite each and every one of you to turn to the book of Matthew. Everyone say Matthew. Matthew. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. And we're going to see what our Lord has to say about being prepared and his second coming. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Lord says. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here comes the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, 
the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Verse 13, I'll read that again. Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So this parable is taken from what we call Jesus' Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapters 25 and 20, 24 and 25 is Jesus' own sermon as it relates to him answering some questions that the disciples asked of him, beginning in verse 24. And why is it called the Olivet Discourse? Because he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus, he begins to go on and on to explain and answer the disciples' questions. You see, that's where this, this, this parable came from. It's in response to of the many questions or several questions that the disciples had asked him earlier. Back in verse chapter 24, it says this, beginning in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the age. So here it is. Jesus begins this discourse, this, this, this sermon, this, this series of, 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 of warnings, explaining and answering the disciples' questions. The disciples had said to him to begin the sermon. They, they said, in other words, they wanted to know, when is your second coming? When, when, is gonna, when is the kingdom going to be established again? The time of establishing the kingdom, when is this going to happen? The time of setting the Messiah's rule over the earth, Jesus. Tell us the signs. When will this happen so we can be ready? His answer came in chapter 24, verse 36. He says this, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He answers again in chapter 24, verse 42. He says this, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. In verse 44, he, he answers it again. He says, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He says, he answers it again in verse, in, uh, verse 50, the same chapter. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know. Four times, these things are repeated. Jesus, he repeats this thing. Four times the Lord has said he's, com he's coming at an unknown moment and he's coming suddenly. And now he gives a parable and concludes this parable by saying, watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hours. So the disciple says this, when will it be? He says, no one will ever know. He says, no one will ever know. It will be sudden and it will be unexpected. He says, you'll know the general time because I'll give you the signs. You'll know the general signs of what's, you know, what's going on. You'll get these signs. You'll get these little indicators but you'll never know the exact hour. You'll know the general marks of that time, which he called the birth pains. 
these signs that are becoming from that's leading to the birth of this kingdom. And I'm so thankful that Pastor Spence within the next coming year, and I hope I don't spoil it, he's going to be talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and we're going to go through a journey with that. But the exact moment and the exact hour, he says, you will never know. For even the epistles tell us that the Lord will come as a thief in the what? Unexpectedly and suddenly. Scripture, it repeats itself, it repeats this theme. The parable has an, an, an intention for us. Here it is. It's intent on teaching us the suddenness and the unexpectedness of the coming of our Lord, which therefore we are called, someone say we are called, to spiritual preparedness, so that we are not caught in that unexpected moment and unprepared for his coming. Notice in verse 1 in chapter 5, it says this. It starts with the word then. Then takes us to a time. What time? The time when the Lord comes that he has just been speaking of in the prior passage, closing chapter 24. The time when he comes to reward the faithful servant and to punish the unfaithful servant. It is the time that the kingdom of heaven, that is God's sphere, his rule, will be like this. So here's a parable to illustrate the time period of his second coming. That is the intent of the opening of verse 1, to take us to the time of the coming of the Lord and it calls for readiness. It calls for preparedness. It calls for alertness on the part of all of us, for that time will come unexpectedly, and it's going to come suddenly. And in this scripture, Matthew uses the word the kingdom of heaven because he's writing to a Jewish people, and he was very sensitive to the fact of using the name God. So he says, the gift for the kingdom of heaven is seen as a reflection of his sensibility to the Jewish audience. The gospel was directed to, and thus he tried to avoid the use of the word God, the forbidden word that they were not to say. Now the parable is very simple and it's clear. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on four elements of the parable, four elements. Number one, we're gonna focus on the wedding, the bridesmaid, the bridegroom, and the warning. So first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the wedding. It's the wedding scene that Jesus is using this parable. And I thought it was very interesting that he used a wedding to illustrate his sudden and unexpected return. After all, back then, weddings were a joyous time. A typical wedding in a Jewish time during the Jesus time, it was a great fest in the village. I mean, it was a great social event around town. I mean, that was it. It was the greatest single social celebration during that, you know, during that time for that culture. Everybody wanted to be involved, family, friends, extended family. Everybody loved to be involved in a festive wedding. It was a time of happiness. It was a time of joy. It was a time of celebration. And that's the scene that we have here that Jesus is using to illustrate this. Although various sources describing this Jewish marriage, it kind of varies just a little bit, but there are like four main elements that are there that I thought was very interesting as Jesus chose this to illustrate his second return. A typical Jewish marriage included a number of steps. First, it required what they call the betrothal, which involved the prospective groom's father. Listen to this, Jalen. 
Jada, I'm going to do all this stuff. Anadasia, Sydney, Zoe, all of them. <laughs> Listen to this. The groom or his father would travel to the bride or the prospective brides and talk to her father. You guys catch that? They would come and they would talk to her father. Someone say, her father. I don't want to say that. I don't know why. But anyway. And they would make a deal. It would be a binding contract. And this contract would say, hey, my, you know, my son, if the father will come or the son will come, hey, I, I want to marry your daughter. We know that there's going to be a loss of revenue when we, we, and she leaves your household and she's going to come to my household. So we understand because most of the time the wife or the wife-to-be was kind of young and she kind of helped in the maintenance of the house, whether it be cleaning or working in the fields. So there's going to be a loss of revenue. And so the father and the son would come and make a deal with the father and pay for it. And so, and at once the deal was made, it was almost, it was just as binding as a marriage because even though the, the actual ceremony hadn't taken place, but once the deal was made, you actually had to go through a divorce to break it. That's how serious it was. And then what would happen, which I thought what was interesting, the son or, 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 or the, the groom, he would go back to his father's house and prepare a place to bring back his wife. And many times, it was inside of the father's house or on his property. And he would go and prepare a place. Now, they would still be married, but he would go and get things set for his bride-to-be, whether it be on the property. And many times, it happened to be in the same. I just really thought that that was interesting, that he would go make the deal, make the purchase with the price, and then go back and prepare a place for his wife-to-be. Then, after a set time, I thought this was interesting, too. The father of the groom would determine when the time was. He would say, okay, is every, the house is ready. I think you're ready, son. You got your monies together. It's time. You got, you got your best man ready. You got your, your other boys ready. It's time. And a lot of times, Pastor Vincent, the son didn't even know. The father would be the one, according to rabbis and other outsiders, it was the father that would determine when it was time to go get the bride. And then they would go and proceed to go get the bride. The bride would know, in general, it would happen, but she would not know exactly when it would happen. And I thought that was very interesting that Jesus would use this parable, parable to describe his second return. So the time of the arrangement, it varies. Sometimes it occurred um, when both of the children were small, and other times it was the year before the marriage itself. So they would set everything up. And a lot of times they didn't even meet until their wedding day. So prior to the we uh, wedding ceremony, the bride underwent what they call a ritual immersion, a ritual cleansing. And then this fourth step, the marriage feast would follow, and that could last for as many as seven days. Can you imagine that? Seven days they would party, so to speak. Many more people would be invited to the feast, and many more, uh, more people were invited to, uh, to participate in the celebration. And during the time, and it usually would happen in the evening, and they would have these torches, and there would be a procession all through the streets or through the town. And there would be singing and there would be dancing and there would be celebration for this great event. 
I mean, can't you just imagine the anticipation of waiting for this great day? I mean, the bride and groom, they, were, I mean, they waited in anticipation. They prepared for everything. And then finally getting to the culmination, finally to the place of the marriage uh, was going to be consummated. It was a great anticipation. And here right here is what I call step three, this parable right here. The collection of the bride and her maids. That's where we're at right here. The collection of the bride and her maids. Where he comes to her house and she's waiting there with all of her bridesmaids. And he arrives with all of the men that are with him. And they collect his bride and the maids and they all go out with torches parading through the night. In celebration and singing and talking with joy. And finally, it came to that everything was ready. He has prepared the home for her. He's now going to get her and take her to that place. And when they arrived at his home at night, they always started those weddings at night so that it could be a, a, a nice processional for everybody. Everybody would have been finished working. Everybody would have you know, been finished with their busyness. And there was the time to celebrate. And they would normally do this in the evening. Then the wedding party would go to the house and celebrate, like I said before, for seven days. And at the end of the celebration, check this out, the bride, I mean the groom, he would have like a best man, and they would bring them together. He, they'd take their hand of the bride and the groom, bring them together, and it would be time for everyone to leave. Well, I hope everyone would leave at that time. But it would be time for them to leave, and the marriage would be consummated. So at, as the wedding, everyone is ready, and, we, and as we join in on the beauty and the wonder of the festival, a second thing we need to know to understand is that the bridesmaid were ten virgins. It says they took their lamps. Actually, it was more like a torch. It was basically a, a little small pole, and it had like, some, like a little wire mesh up on it, and they put cloth on it, and they would put oil on it and so that it could torch the night. So there was that wooden pole. That cloth would be soaked in oil, and it was to give uh, a, a flaming torch light. They would carry on their person somewhere a little flask of oil so that they could keep that lit for as long as necessary. So here are the ten virgins who take their lamps, and they go forth, no doubt, to the house of the bride to get ready for this coming, ready and waiting to meet the bridegroom. They are her chosen ladies. They are her young girls to attend to her. They were her friends. They were her cousins. They were her close family friends, but yet they were not married. They were chosen because they were dear and close and intimate with her. And it was a special joy and special thrill to belong to this special group and to anticipate this glorious evening. And they brought their torches along to light the night through the procession. Now we ask ourselves the question, who are these girls? Who are they? And it's quite obvious from what our Lord says who they are. These ten virgins or, 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 or these bridesmaids, they are those who profess to be Christians. That's who they are. They are those who profess to be Christians. They are those who claim to belong to Christ. They are those who have gathered with the assembly of Christian people to await the coming of the Lord. They are those who say they know Christ. They are those who are anticipating his coming. They're anticipating. They say these are the ones who say they believe they know about the wedding. They know that the time is near. And they even say that they say that they made their preparation. They have on their wedding garment and they have their torches. They show outward marks of, of, of Christians. 
They show outward marks of readiness. They show outward marks of commitment to Jesus Christ. They show all these outward marks. They're part of, they are part of the believing community. They are gathered as bridesmaids, as it were, ready to receive into his glorious marriage celebration. They profess to love Christ and his appearing. They profess to hear the gospel and they believe. They profess to be disciples and to wait on the son of, for the Son of Man and desire his kingdom. They are the ones that are professing them. And frankly, when you see them, they're not very easily to distinguish. You really can't tell. They all have on their wedding garments. They've been chosen by the bridesmaids. They all attend to the bride. They all have their torches. And they are first indistinguishable. But they are not alike. And this message, and this is the message of the parable, that they are not all alike. In verse 2 of chapter 25, listen how Jesus describes them. He says, five of them were wise and five were foolish. God knows. It may not have been clear to others, but God, the one who searches our heart, who searches our soul, he knew. And there is a characterization in verse 2. Let's look at verse He looks into the heart of these ten, uh, of these ten and the five were wise. Having, and, and the word that was, that's used there it means having to do with the brain. That means they were thoughtful, sensible, they were prudent. And five were what they call what they call morals. They were dull, stupid, foolish. So they were very different. Not outwardly, but inwardly they were very different. They were different because you had the wise and you had the foolish. But from outward appearances, you could not tell. And it wasn't apparent at first. And we know that the Lord, he can look down on any assembled group of people. He can look down and he can see those who are really waiting for his com coming. You know, we have our garments on, we have our torches in hand, but he knows whether or not you are wise or whether if you are foolish. We may not, but he knows. And the differentiation here is preparedness. That's the differentiation, preparedness. Verse 3 and 4. Here's where the wisdom and foolish was made known. This is how you were able to know, be able to tell between the wise and the foolish. Verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. The wise, they carried this little flask of oil with them. The fools, guess what? They had no oil at all. They made no proper preparation. It was all outside. It was all external. They hadn't cared for the most necessary thing, and that is the oil, so that they could light the torch. They all made a profession, but only five had the genuine oil of preparedness. Only five. The foolish virgins were outwardly attached, but they were, commit they were committed intellectually. They were committed socially. They were even committed religiously, like some of us are today. And the purpose of the parable is to warn us not to be caught in such an unpreparedness when the Lord returns. So let us be reminded that this is repeated is a repeated theme throughout the Lord's ministry. Over and over again, Jesus speaks to this issue. He says, for example, in the kingdom they will grow together wheat and tares, right? He says, as much like uh, he's going to separate the sheep from the goat, right? 
And we have to be careful because only the Lord knows whose are his. They all grow up together. They're all mixed up together. But the Lord knows how to distinguish them apart. So this is a repeated message of our Lord. And as I was going through this message, it kind of disturbed me to say this truth. But the visible church body is filled with people who are unredeemed and unprepared for the coming of our Lord. It's filled with them. I mean, it really, it hurts to say this truth. That the church, the universal church, it is filled with people. They are unredeemed and unprepared for the coming of our Lord. And that is a sobering thought. I mean, that's why we're here to exist. That's why the church of Chicago is here, to proclaim the kingdom of God with an anticipation of what? Christ's what? Soon return. So that means there's a sense of urgency, a sense of getting prepared, not only for ourselves, but helping other people to get prepared. I'm, interested, uh, I'm very interested in the fact that, uh, uh, the parable too, that the Lord didn't say that one of them didn't have any oil. I mean, I thought that was interesting. He didn't just say, you know, he could have made the fact that, you know, one of them didn't have, but he said five of them didn't. And I'm not trying to make this like a mathematical uh, uh, calculation that's saying that 50% of the people in church are unredeemed. I'm not saying that. But what it does say this is that a significant number of people in the church are unprepared. Unprepared in the church. So I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not drawing a mathematical conclusion. I love math. I'm not trying to say that Jesus is saying 50% of the people that attend church that they are not prepared. No, but he is saying, you know, it's not an isolated event. It's not isolated. And I know this is not one of those feel-good messages, but it is a message that the Lord thought it was important to repeat over and over and over and over again. There's going to be a lot of people that at the time of judgment, they're going to be surprised. They're, 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 they're going to be like, we, you know, we've done this and we've done this, we've done this. And the Lord's going to say, I never knew you. He's not going to say, I knew you once before, but you felt, no, he's going to say, I never knew you. So it is truly to say that it is a common issue and it is not isolated. That I just thought it was interesting that out of the ten, he says there were five that was unprepared. And I believe that the church is filled with these kind of people all, all across the world, the universal church. Let's look at verse five. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. The bridegroom doesn't come when they expect him. They knew it would probably be an evening. They knew the signs, but he came at a time where they didn't expect him. It, 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 got, it became later, it became later, and later, and later. Now, I get the feeling in the context of Matthew chapters 24 and 25 that the Lord has said, even when you've seen the signs that he gave earlier, even when you've seen all those signs that will happen, even though you've seen the Son of Man and have you seen all these things going to take place, he says, finally, there's going to be a time, there's going to be a gap, there's going to be like a lull of time, and people are going to be seen waiting and waiting and waiting, and then kind of sort of just kind of go back to the normal things of life. And they kind of doze off and go to sleep. What our Lord is saying here is that there will be a time of waiting before he comes. Even after he's seen all, we've seen all the signs, there's going to be a time of waiting. 
but be sure that he is coming. And it will be a time that will sort of lull people into this type of, well, I have to go on with the routine as usual. You know, there's nothing wrong with sleep, amen? There's nothing wrong with sleep. Sleep's a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But there is something wrong with it if you're not prepared for what is going to awaken you when you are asleep. That's the issue. Sleeping is not condemned here. I've seen some commentaries, and, and they're condemning sleep. That's not the issue here. That's not the driving point that Jesus is getting here. Sleeping is not condemned. Why? The wise were asleep just like the foolish. They were wise. He's not condemning sleep. When you look at the, the thrust of the message, he's not condemning sleep. Because the, the, wise, the, the wise, they were asleep just like the, un, the unwise were, the foolish one was. And when the bridegroom comes and they wake up, the rest of the wives, they had sweet rest because they were ready. They were ready. And some of us have said, we've been waiting, we've been waiting, and we've been waiting, and where is he? And so we kind of sort of settle back to the fact that we have to eat, you know, we have to work, we have to take care of things. And that doesn't mean that we're not waiting in anticipation. No, it doesn't mean that. But what it means is that we should always be ready. And so he tarries, or as he's delayed, and the girls, they all fall asleep. Some would say they all fall asleep. And that's how it is in human life, right? We have to take care of human things. It doesn't mean that they weren't prepared. Five were, and five weren't. The ones who were prepared could well afford to go on with their routine life because they were prepared. The ones who were prepared could go, could go on. The ones who were not prepared could not afford to go on with routine life. They could not afford to. They should have taken care of what they could when they had the opportunity. Their false sense of security let them sleep through their day of opportunity, and that was the tragedy, because now that opportunity has now passed them by. Let's look at the bridegroom in verse 6. We're still in chapter 25. Let's look at the bridegroom. But at midnight was a cry. Here comes the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Midnight. Now, that's a funny time for me, and at least in my eyes, that's a funny time to start a wedding, at midnight. But for the point that our Lord wants us to make, he's simply saying that he's coming at a time that is unexpected. That we understand more uh, that, uh, why they were asleep, right? Sleep is wonderful. Sleep, is, and we're supposed to do that. And we're supposed to be asleep at midnight unless you're a truck driver and you happen to be working at night, okay? But for the most part, we're supposed to be asleep at midnight, right? But the tearing was so long that now at midnight when no one expects the wedding to start is exactly when he comes. When nobody expects it, that's when he comes. It's a late hour, and unexpected time reminds us, doesn't it, of the scriptures where he says, he will come as a thief in the night. The world, some, the world somehow is lulled into this type of uh, uh, complacency where he, becomes, where he comes in an unexpected moment, even after all the signs. I mean, the bridesmaid knew that the wedding was near. They knew. They could read the signs. It was time for them to get prepared. They were supposed to get their torches. They were supposed to get their oil. They knew that the sign, they didn't know exactly, but they knew that it was time for this to get ready to happen. They knew it was time to gather at the bride's house and the festivity hours was about to begin. They knew the preparations needed to be in place. They knew it was time, but they still wasted their opportunity, these foolish ones. And at midnight, there was a cry, and the cry obviously was to announce his approach. And I suppose there will be such a cry when he finally comes to set up his kingdom in that last and glorious moment. A cry out from heaven. 
It's going to be, it's going to be a crowd. It's going to be very similar. Prepare. The Lord is here. A shout. I mean, that's, that's what's going to happen. And this, of course, is the moment, the glorious moment that begins the wedding, the celebration. And even though it's late, it's going to go on for at least seven days anyway. So it's wonderful that it should even start then, because this, this party is about to go on and on and on. The procession is a collection of the bridegroom, and he comes with his ten attending men to meet the bride at her house and to bring her back to, the, to his father's house, this prepared place for them. Let's look at verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Perhaps they readied all the cloths that, that needed to go on this little wiry mesh so that it could stay. You know, perhaps they were getting all that stuff together and poured oil on them and, and getting ready to go out and, and light the torch so they can flame at light. Those who had no oil, they knew it now. They're like, uh-oh. They said, oh, maybe they thought that they could just go down the street and just get some before he got there. Maybe they didn't think it would be midnight when everything would be closed. Or maybe they hadn't even bothered to think about that. Maybe they thought they, just, they could just sort of borrow what they didn't have. Nothing is said about that. We, do, we just know that they were what? Unprepared. We don't understand what their mindset was, but the point is they were unprepared, and they should have been. They certainly didn't do what 2 Corinthians 13 and 5 says this. It says what? Let a man examine himself. Examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. But you know what? If the, if the call to go to be at the judgment seat of God came to you, whether in death or in the second coming of Christ, and it came to you when you were not ready and you were not prepared, all the saints in heaven, all of the people that have gone on before you to be with the Lord, all of the people who, 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 are, who are in Christ, and if you are not prepared, they're crying and stuff. All, no matter all they do, it's not going to help you at this time. It's too late. All the people on earth could be standing there weeping for your behalf, but it'll be too late. Your salvation is not transferable. That's the point. It is not, it is, it is not to interject that, that the wives were selfish. They weren't selfish. They couldn't. It wouldn't be enough for them. The parable is not intended to teach selfishness. It is intending to teach the non-transferable nature of salvation. The saved can't save the lost in that sense. Give us your oil is a request that no one can answer. Every person must have his own salvation. Every person must have his or her own salvation. Every person must make his own life right before God. Pastor Spencer, you can't grab onto my arm and say, hey, I'm, 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 I want part of yours. And I can't grab onto your leg. It can't. We have to stand. We have to make things right before God ourselves. We can't impute our salvation to onto someone else. So the wise answer in verse 9. Here's the, here's the wise virgins. Here's their response. They say this. Since there would not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. The idea here is to simply teach you that you've got to get your own. That's the idea. You have to get your own. No one can give it to you. Oil was plenty. Oil was available, but not at midnight and not right now. You had equal opportunity, but you slept away the day of grace, and you slept away the time of opportunity. 
the sellers of the oil. You know what these sellers of the oil are. They are the scriptures. They are the apostles. They are the prophets. They are the teachers. They are the preachers. They are the Sunday school attendants. There are all these opportunities. That's the oil, the preparedness. People, I tell you, uh, it's a very serious teaching in the Bible. This is a very serious, and Jesus gave it over and over and over again. That there are in church myriads and bunches of people who are unprepared to face God. And many of them are deceived about that. And in a moment when they face the reality of their unpreparedness, it will be in that moment that it's too late. Salvation isn't there, no matter what appears to be on the outside. Oh, you know, there's so many people, they're happy about Jesus. They're happy that they belong to the community of believing folks. You know, they're happy that they attend, you know, services every now and then. They're happy that they go to Bible study. Oh, they're happy that they watch your favorite TV evangelist. Oh, they're happy about that. But they're not prepared. Verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. The door was shut. When I read that, it was frightening, frightening. And I believe that the church, unfortunately, is filled with those kind of people. If you notice in verse 11, verse 11 in this parable, they're gone. The marriage begins, and it says, Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. They want in. They have no oil, but they want in. I mean, they're saying, we're your friends, we're your cousins, we're, we're a part of the wedding party. We, we belong in the fellowship. We're involved. See, we were involved. But he answered them in verse 12. Truly I say to you, I do not know you. He says, I don't know you. So there is no second chance. You see, the only sure way to be ready on the unexpected day is to be ready every day. I'm going to say that again. I want you to think about that. The only sure ready to be ready on the unexpected day is to be ready every day. And that brings us finally to the warning, which makes a lot of sense after the parable. Here's the warning. Watch, therefore. Literally, he's saying, keep alert, be ready. Based upon this, be ready. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man comes. You, we do not know that exact moment. Yes, the signs. We, you know, we, we can have a great idea of the signs. Immediately after the sign of the Son of Man is in heaven, but how far, how much time and space, how many moments, how many days, how many months, how many seconds in between that time, how, we just don't know. But in the hour when men think not, and this is the fifth time he has said in this particular sermon, you do not know. You do not know. So be ready all the time. You see, when it comes to this, to be a little late is to be late 
forever. To be a little late is to be late forever. I can't tell you how many times when witnessing the people and talking to people and they say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna wait till, you know, I'm a little bit older, man, because, you, you know, I'm gonna wait till I get myself right, or I'm gonna wait till this situation change, or I'm gonna wait till I get a little bit more time, or I, 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 I gotta wait till I find the perfect place, and I, I gotta, you know, you name the excuse, I think I've almost heard them all. My brothers and sisters, the, the, the Lord wants to say that that's foolish. The opportunity is right now to go get your oil, to be prepared. This is the opportunity. We don't know when the day nor the hour. And here, Jesus don't, does not want us to have this, this false sense of security. Now, we as believers, we know that once we're in the Lord's hands, we're here. We, we understand that. Once we're his, we are his. There's nothing that's changing that. There's nothing that's going to change that. But here Jesus is talking to the, what they call these nominal Christians, these, these people that, that, that are not, they, they, they profess an outward faith, but inside they, they're not prepared. And thus the warning. And thus scripture reminds us all, uh, many times, many times, let a man examine himself to see that he is of the faith. And it's okay to do that. But at the same time, we can still be sure that if we are in the Lord's hands, we are there. We're sealed. My brothers and sisters, it was, we saw in the parable, Jesus said, not to put a mathematical uh, equation to this, but he says, five of the virgins were foolish. Now, these were people, the, these were people that were in fellowship all together. There, no, there was no way to really tell until at that moment when, his, when, when there was the time uh, for the groom to come. Right. It was too late. Right. My brothers and sisters, it would be a tragedy that someone that's here today that hears this message and knows that the Lord is pricking at your heart concerning this. It would be a tragedy, a sad tragedy Pastor Spencer loves you. I love you too. We all love you. But it will be a tragedy if you hear this message and you know that the Lord is pricking at your heart, that you know that he is uh, 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 just, just pulling at you concerning this. If that is you, I just want you to, uh, David, if you don't mind, just place yourself. I, I really want all of us, I said all of us, to really examine our hearts right now.